Welcome to the Fuller Report and Weekly Review. This is uh, Monday, the 14th of February. And so, Paul, this is uh, Valentine's Day, and you did get your wife something, I hope. <laughs> no, I did You're not. in trouble, if not. I just well, saw a Southern thing on Facebook that was really clever about a guy's wife, and he said, uh, you know, she said, oh, no, we don't have to get any, anything for us this year. And they put, they, there was a skit that he says, you are not going to make it that you never take that on face value. <laughs> and so you have offended against the, uh, the, the, uh, the Southern thing. Uh, you always do it. So you better make up for it right now or else that sofa you're sitting on talking to your wife, you'll be sleeping on. So it, well, it was cute. It was, I have a bit, I, I might be considered a bit of a myth or maybe a unicorn, uh, for at least for you know, having a unicorn for a relationship. Uh, but they are real. Uh, ever since my wife and I uh, were dating, we we just never. We might go out for dinner or something for Valentine's Day, but we uh, we basically swore it off from the very beginning of our relationship. And don't ask me how I got her to go along with it. I don't know, but uh, we just kind of uh, we just really just don't do you're, anything. You're you're in a very lonely place there when you have the meeting of those who don't do it. They I don't think anybody else is going to show up, but anyway, that's okay. <laughs> We're not here to discuss Valentine's Day anyway. So, <laughs> but anyway, the week uh, cooler report and weekly review, and uh, we come together uh, usually on uh, Monday of the beginning of the week when the newsletter comes out on Tuesday for the cooler report. And as I like to remind you when we meet in this podcast, that the top ten of the articles that we review are those articles that are chosen by the readers. So as you're reading the cool report on a regular basis uh, and you click on a view, then the analytics picks that up and we just tally the numbers. And so that's what we do with it. And uh, so uh, this gives an opportunity for Paul and myself, Dominic Aquila, to um, just have some discussion, uh, perhaps tease out things, uh, expand on a little bit, but just an encouragement for you. So whether you're listening to this podcast before you get the newsletter or afterwards, it still will make sense and you can get some background data. So, uh, Paul, that uh, besides being in the Lonely Hearts Club, anything else happening in your neck of the woods? <laughs> no, uh, nothing really. I will say the top 10 list this week is, uh, you know, really interesting. We have a, a lot of threads in there about, you know, not uh, abandoning the fight or the controversies that are or that the PCA is currently dealing with. Um, and so that seems to be a common thread in a, in a lot of these uh, yeah. posts. This that's, week. that's exactly right. And uh, and it's interesting because it, it, we're uh, we're still a number of months away from the General Assembly of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, which won't be until beginning around June 21. Uh, it'll be meeting in Birmingham, but some of the issues are already coming up, especially with regard to the overtures. And so article number one is entitled The End of Overtures 23 and 37. Uh, it's an unfortunate negative uh, thing, uh, at least from those who were supporting overtures 23 and 37. Uh, just as a reminder that uh, this issue of, of what those overtures dealt with 23 and 37 goes all the way back to the dust up with regard to revoice and the conference that was held in July of 2018. So we're now coming up on four years uh, since that. And it because uh, it, the revoice, which dealt with the whole issue of um, uh, the homosexuality or same sex attractiveness and how the people who are in that uh, sphere or area can be received in the church or be a part of the church and so forth. And so it created a lot of debate uh, and it's still creating a lot of debate. And from that, the uh, church then received um, quite a bit, a number of uh, requests, overtures they're called, that is the requests that are put before general assembly to do something because the first revoice was held at a, uh, PCA building, uh, Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. So all of those factors together, we had a study committee 
that uh, came up with a report on human sexuality, which was well received by um, most in the church. But we also felt there had to be something that had to be put into the Book of Church Order, which is part of the constitution of the uh, PCA. And so they got labeled at the last General Assembly as overtures 23 and 37. They were dealing with the same subject, but they were in different chapters. One was more theoretical and foundational. That was 23, uh, talking about what uh, a man who is going to be a church officer, so pastor, minister of the gospel, an elder or deacon. So those are your three ordained offices in the PCA. Uh, what does it mean to be above reproach, which is a phrase that Paul uses, uh, Titus 1.7, and, and he implies it in, um, um, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So the, uh, the, those who being debated in 37 was more the, the outworking, putting feet on that overture in terms of how would a, a court, whether the session uh, for a, the elder and the deacon or the presbytery for uh, the minister uh, would be able to process what uh, Overture 23 was about. But anyway, to do that required that the General Assembly approve it and uh, by a majority vote, which uh, happened at the two, uh, 2021 uh, General Assembly. And then it's sent down to the presbyteries. In the PCA, there are 88 presbyteries. And we needed two-thirds or 59 of the presbyteries to give assent. If uh, that happens, then it comes back to the next General Assembly and requires another majority vote of that General Assembly. Well, the just this past week, um, the 23 uh, uh, failed to feel it received the 30th, let me put it that way, uh, negative vote uh, from a presbytery. And that meant that there was no way that you could then get to the uh, absolute number of 59. 37 had reached its number 30 a couple of weeks back uh, beforehand. So we thought maybe 23 would still be able to be made, make it. But this past Saturday, the 12th, uh, the 30th presbytery voted in the negative and did not approve it. So for all intents and purposes right now, that's the end of overtures, as the title of the article says. Um, 23 and 37 now over, and they won't be uh, dealt with. Now, just to just to, you know make it clear, the it, the discussion isn't over. There are a number of uh, presbyteries that are already working on uh, sending up new overtures that will replace these. Maybe take into account the some of the concerns of the language and the wording that were in 23 and 37. And uh, so the, the debate's not over, the fight's not over, and we'll have a couple of other articles that we'll be touching on uh, staying the course, the, thing, uh, the battle's not over, and th things will, um, you know, we're going to continue discussing what needs to be discussed. So that's uh, what the first article is about. And of course, there was a high interest, and people were tracking this. It's written by Scott Edberg, who is an assistant pastor at the First Christian Church in Tuscumbia, Alabama, and he did a yeoman's job of uh, tracking the numbers and keeping everyone up to date. He developed a spreadsheet that was available online for people to look at and see the progress of these two overtures. So that this one will just give you some uh, percentages and numbers and so forth that you could um, uh, store away and seeing that the battle's not over yet. It'll It'll continue. Yeah, I mean, the the number one article, again, the end of Overture's 23 and 37 have been basically mathematically eliminated from getting the two-thirds required that you need. And I think that's also why you see a lot of the other articles in the top ten about it not being over, like you said, Dominic, and, and uh, trying to encourage people to, to stay in the fight. Uh, on the other hand, the fact that uh, what's discouraging about it, and let's just be honest, it is discouraging. There's no way to sugarcoat it. There weren't two thirds. The numbers weren't there for two thirds of the presbyteries to do something about what should be in a lot of people's minds. And, and I think if the overtures would have made it to General Assembly, by the way, they would have been passed overwhelmingly. 
Now, I, I respect the process. I understand, you know, what's on paper. But that's also really frustrating as well, that we didn't have two thirds of presbyteries that would agree. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm just speaking for myself with what Scripture plainly teaches, with what Scripture plainly says. And, and that's why I think you also have people saying, oh, don't go anywhere yet. Let's let's try to, you know, let's 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 stay in the fight. And I think that's those articles are out there because the fear is, is that there are people that are like, whoa, I, I you know, this may be this may have crossed the line here. Now, let's wait and see what happens in, in June. And I, I fully understand that. What I want to know, Dominic, is if you go back to uh, Greg Johnson, which that's what all of this is really about. I mean, I know there's I know there's other issues here. And we're going to get to uh, the SJC decision on the Missouri Presbytery concerning Greg Johnson here in a minute. But when I go back to the USA Today article uh, that Greg Johnson wrote, where he said he had been exonerated, he, he wrote in part this, quote, after a recent investigation, I was exonerated in January 2020, then exonerated again. Finally, this October, our denominational Supreme Court cleared me. That ruling can't be appealed. So I kid you not, he writes in USA Today, Greg Johnson, quote, my critics are now trying to change our denominational constitution to get rid of me, barring from ministry anyone who is honest about not being heterosexual. So my question was, is Greg Johnson going to go on USA Today or at least request to go uh, to have more editorial space in the USA Today publication to say that, in fact, that those efforts that he characterized as, you know, attempting to bar him from ministry failed. Uh, and mm -hmm. I only raise this to the point of I, I, I know because I know there's another article, Dominic, about how that SJC decision does not, in fact, say that we're a side B denomination now. And I know that's up for some debate, but it just it just occurs to me that uh, the you know, these grievances to the mainstream press that make the church look really bad. Uh, are a one-way street, and that's when I when I that's the first thing that popped into my head when I saw that the overtures have been mathematically eliminated. This article is something else, isn't it? I mean, it, it really. If you keep going back to this article written by Greg Johnson, again, the title of it was "I'm a gay celibate pastor of a conservative church." Here's a trick for de-escalation. And we look at everything that's happening. I, I just wonder. I, I just doubt that there's going to be a follow-up editorial saying, "Hey." Uh, my denomination isn't homophobic because that certainly was the implication. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing to uh, look at is, is the, the, in two ways uh, that while there wasn't the two thirds, uh, that the uh, numbers were still very much in favor of the uh, both overtures. Uh, we, the, the, the guess is that by the time it's all done, it will have 55 presbyteries. That means four shy of the 59 that will vote in the affirmative for it. And uh, for 37, it'll be a little bit less than that. So that you have more than a majority because of um, uh, 44 is half and both of them are going to have more than the 44. So you have more than a majority of the uh, presbyteries in the denomination of the fort. And if you just take the raw numbers, uh, someone else has done this and uh, add them up, uh, you know, from what if you take all the those who were for in each press trade and those who were against and you tally up the numbers of people voting that, again, it's almost a, it does almost come up a two thirds, one third um, vote and just the raw data. It's just that they were happening in, you know, different uh, presbyteries. So in terms of the bottom well, line numbers, it they it really indicates that that um there was prevalence but when you're changing the constitution you have a higher uh, threshold right, right. To, i think to those, those numbers you referenced would be very helpful to a lot of people yeah uh yeah. they need to be published they need to be put out there especially when we get the final number because i i know there's still some presbyteries out there that have yet to vote right. exactly but, and, and we're going to get those out there uh and so one like i said one of them has already uh, been out there we didn't have all the the raw day but the up to the point that this was done probably about a few weeks ago, uh, that was the uh, numbers uh, in terms of if it were everybody was in one room voting, it would have it, you almost you did get to two thirds of the, um, the raw numbers that was that way, plus 55 versus 59. 
And um, so it shows that there is a high interest. And so the direction of the vote just gives some indication that's a positive uh, direction. So we'll we'll work on this and um, and hopefully as we go through the other articles that we can sort of get, you know add some more light and so forth uh, to it. Okay, but uh, your comments though of what uh, referring back to the USA Today editorial was uh, I think very uh, prominent, very important uh, to take stock of. Uh, by the way, and it's true the. The issue before the uh, the Standing Judicial Commission was not about Johnson. It was about the Presbytery, his Presbytery, Missouri Presbytery. And the question was, did the Presbytery fail to accurate to do its due diligence in the investigation of Greg Johnson? That was what was before them, not whether or not uh, Johnson himself was guilty because there had been no formal charges that had been brought against him for him to have to be exonerated. It was the presbytery that the SJC said was okay. And, uh, but there are, but, but issues, it, the matter is not over and there is a second, um, uh, the, uh, you know, complaint or a judicial case that the SJC will be deciding here, uh, hopefully by March 3rd or 4th. So we'll come back to that once it's uh, out. Number two, and uh, let's see, uh, number two, and uh, what's the other? Let me get my number here. I believe it's uh, 10, number two. Ten, number, ten. number 10, two and 10 really are for the second number and the 10th uh, article. Uh, we have um, uh, written by Tom Hervey, uh, the, um, the an article on a, a, the the overall theme is a, she, a sheep speaks that's himself he's the sheep and then a testimony to the national partnership and this is referring in number two to part one number 10 will be part two um and there are five uh, parts to the articles and the other uh part three is out today so if you want to get ahead of the discussion here you can go and read on the equal report right now uh and uh part four um will uh let's see no part three was the other day uh friday and then part four is out today and then part five will probably be out tomorrow so anyway five parts written by tom he's a member of the woodruff road uh, presbyterian church in um just outside of greenville in simpsonville uh south carolina so uh this is basically an analysis that Tom does of the uh, emails that were leaked. And I think last week, one of our top 10, where it was big, we had a number of articles that dealt with the Presby leaks, that is, uh, leaks that came from we don't know where. Uh, since I'm assuming that since they were uh, emails that go all the way back to 2013 to the present, that it had to be somebody within the national partnership organization uh, that uh, released them uh, for what reason we don't know or how all we know is they they were uh, made available and people have begun reading them so tom harvey from greenville here uh, took time to read through them as i think it print out to over 400 pages uh, of these emails and he gives an objection so he starts out first uh, he says in discussing this matter, he talks about different and these parts. He's going to be talking about different topics or along the way. But basically what he is saying is in discussing what we came to the question of the e email leaks and to the objection that it was unlawful act of trafficking and confidential intellectual property that discredits the leaker and makes any criticism of you is built upon the leaks materials illegitimate. The leak was unsavory, and on its first occurrence, I regarded, at, regarded it as an open question as to whether it was appropriate or whether it, having already occurred, it would be appropriate to pursue the leaked materials, peruse rather. Uh, upon reflection, I have concluded that uh, you have suffered no wrong in this. In other words, the leak was, uh, whether right, wrong, or different, it has happened, and that the leak, though unpleasant, was justified. So on that basis, now you can um, read 
the you know his assessment and so number article number one deals uh, or yeah part one deals with the nature of the organization and basically that it's a secret organization and he talks uh, tom does about the various uh matters that uh, why that raises a concern especially within a pressuring system in which you have uh, ordained elders both uh, teaching that is the minister and ruling elders the lay leaders um, having taken oaths to uh, be presbyterian and to conduct themselves in ways that uh would be appropriate that things should be open and above board and nothing uh, done in uh, hiding so um this is number two because it touches on something that is really uh, significant. So uh, he goes on to say, we may plead all that is against you, for we act in defense. Uh, defense you, the instigators may lay claims uh, claim to none of it. The leaker has but done his duty by performing, informing the rest of us of your doings that will affect us. And he's by us and so forth. He's talking about the PCA. He who uses craft and secrecy can little object if others do so more adeptly in response. And an organization that has secretly set itself up in the midst of another cannot object to others secretly infiltrating it in response, at least not without being hypocritical. So it's a really incisive um, matter. And so if we go to just real quick and then, Paul, you can address it. Part two he deals with the uh, practical consequences of secrecy. Uh, so um, in your reaction against others in the denomination, you have given yourselves to a form of organization and methods that are not acceptable. And now the only way that you can remove the offense of your unjustified secret political machinations is by openly repenting of them. Write a letter and post it at a faithful PCA. Uh, that was the... the um, uh, there was a document that came out with a later letter that was signed by uh, many um, uh, teachers, I mean, uh, ministers and elders. Um, so that document is there by faith or some other suitable place. The idea is uh, he's calling the individuals or the members of the National Partnership who were engaged in this from 2013 on, as, at least as far as what we know historically from these uh, emails, uh, that they should... Uh, what they've done was to bring really damage and hurt and wounding to the church, and they owe the church an apology and definitely a call to repentance. So, Paul, what's your... Yeah, from the moment these, uh, from the moment the leaks happened, I mean, as soon as, uh, you know, I heard about it, I also heard about, you know, people upset that there was a leak. Uh, and that this person should be ashamed of themselves or this person may have sinned. And I was just thinking, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa wait a second. And this article hits on that perfectly. Uh, the first one here, that which is number two on the list. And um, and he writes, the leak was unsavory. And on its first occurrence, I regarded it as an open question as to whether it was appropriate or whether it having already occurred, it would be appropriate to pursue the leaked materials or peruse the leaked materials. Upon reflection, I have concluded that you have suffered no wrong in this and that the leak, though unpleasant, was justified. Here's why. Number one, privacy is not separable from legality. No one has a right to privacy in wrongdoing. To the contrary, participants have a duty to testify to the wrong deeds of unlawful enterprises, to persist in concealing their existence and transgressions because of that strange notion of brotherly loyalty that is common in such organizations is not honorable to turn uh, is not honorable to turn states evidence is your organization is unlawful and is nowhere provided for by scripture prudence a common sense of ethical propriety or our constitution it is in every way contrary to the ethos of such things and stands condemned thereby the leaker did not violate your right to privacy in this for you have none. Rather, he acted in accordance with his duty to turn from the illicit organization and its deeds and to reveal them to those who are affected by them. And, you know, then he cites scripture from, you know, Leviticus, Zechariah, Ephesians, Proverbs, Second Kings. And uh, this this whole section of the first uh, uh, part of the article is really good. And then when you go on to the second one, again, which is number 10 on our list, we're addressing these um, in the same uh, in the same deal, uh, further concerns 
Uh, he writes, it is not only your secretive tendencies that are an occasion for concern. To be blunt, not in an effort to be rude, mind you, but in the interest of speaking the truth faithfully, you come across as rather arrogant and hypocritical. You are rather snidely dismissive of others that disagree with you. The Aquila Report is just a gossip outlet, a mere handful of writers against your own robust multitude of elders, while the concerns of others are repeatedly brushed aside as just so much social media outrage. This, These two articles, and there are actually more, Dominic, I believe you are uh, uh, in the in the process of uh, putting another one, there, because there's a series, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, the number three is up already. Four is going to be up um, tomorrow. And I think I'm working and then five will be up this later this week. Right. And and, you know, I think I think uh, uh, the author here does something that I certainly couldn't do. Tom Tom Hervey, uh, he is he is speaking uh, uh, truth, but but doing it in a way that is, you know, is you can tell he's trying to be as polite and respectful as he can be at the same time. He's not pulling any punches here. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the uh, I think that uh, he's and he, as you read the other parts, because he's you, it'd be great to have them all together and they will all be linked to so you could follow them uh, carefully together. Um, will uh, does say that, you know, to have this after action uh, evaluation assessment is really healthy for the life of the church. And for someone who's not involved, really, even at the uh, church, local church level, even denominational level, I think it really, it's, uh, you know, really helpful, you know, to uh, have this assessment. It's a uh, dispassionate, it is uh, removed. It's uh, someone that doesn't have a, um, you know, uh, you know, the dog in the fight. And so uh, it, it's not coming across as a screed at all. Okay, well, number three takes to uh, an explanation of what created uh, the, of the things that we've just talked about, the overtures, uh, and then also the partnership letters as well. And so what the church has been sort of obsessed with, uh, concerned with, involved in, in debate on, and that's the matter of dissent, uh, the, the Standing Judicial Commission, uh, there was a, a, a decision that was made that was uh, released on October 21 of uh, 2021. Uh, then there was a dissent that was submitted in proper order. Uh, the, the SJC decided the case. Uh, there were 23 members present. Normally there are 24, but one uh, there was some sickness in the family, couldn't be there. So it was uh, 23, and that was the vote was 16 to find that the uh, Missouri press day had not uh, failed to do its due diligence. There were seven that argued they they would have uh, voted to say yes, to hold them accountable. And so with those seven, there was a, a dissent that was written. And then there uh, were also some concurrences. Now, concurrences just as in the Supreme Court, uh, where you have the major the, the main decision, and then the justices can either say I dissent and here are the reasons and or I concur but I would I would have added this and given give some, some more reasoning so this article basically is now picking up after the fact the uh, that the dissent that the main decision was made then the dissent and they're all in the article they are all linked so you can read all of these and then in the manual of the uh, manual of operation for the Standing Judicial Commission, there the court itself, the SJC, can respond to the dissent. And so that response is there. So there's a lot of paper, okay? So the main decision, the dissent, and then the court itself uh, has a response to the dissent, uh, so defending themselves and why the 16 said what they did. And then there were two concurrences. That is, there were two individuals that wrote, uh, we agree, we would have said a little bit more, and they are listed here as well. Now, what's interesting is, as we look at uh, this um, article that was also written by Scott Edberg, as we mentioned, he's the one that put together all of our spreadsheet and keeping up tabs with the election. 
of the votes on the overtures that he draws this concluding. Therefore, some of the majority, that's the 16, to some extent, uh, share the concerns of the minority. Okay, what he means by that is that in this one concurrence, there were two primary authors, uh, okay, of the 16 who voted in favor of granting that Missouri Presley didn't err. Uh, and two of them said, well, we would have added some more language. And by the time you finished, it sounded a little bit more like a dissent. And then they were joined by four others. So that means six uh, joined that concurrence. And that's interesting because now in that light, uh, Scott says this, uh, therefore some of the majority to some extent share the concerns of the minority. That is 15 of the 24, and we should probably say 23 here, uh, men on the SJC have now to some extent gone on official record to express concerns over te teaching Elder Johnson's views. So in other words, did the prostate fail to really check out his views right? Uh, the seven who voted uh, yes, yeah, we think he did. Of course, they were in the majority. Um, they did. And now by the time you read this concurrence, it looks like these other men have joined them in understanding, yeah, you know, maybe it was weak here, it was weak there. So uh, in one sense, it, it really goes against the concept that he was exonerated although it was dealing with Missouri Presbytery. This development contradicts claims that T.E. Johnson's views were exonerated by the SJC uh, in the uh, case, which is Speck uh, versus uh, Missouri Presbytery. Uh, in the case of the SJC decision represented an adjudication regarding the particular Presbytery's process by evaluating the investigative process of, teaching of uh, Missouri Presbytery. This case was chiefly about Missouri Presbytery and not about T.E. Johnson or his views. The case was about evaluating Missouri Presbytery's investigation, teaching Elder Johnson. At the very least, the SJC was not vindicate, has not vindicated uh, Johnson as Johnson claims, and this case has not made the PCA Presbytery uh, PCA uh, into a side B denomination, as some concerned onlookers have made claim. Basically, the door is not closed at this point on this issue in the PCA. So th there's more There's more to come. Uh, some other, like I said, overtures going to be presented. There are also other uh, judicial cases that are still in the pipeline that will probably have to balance this off. But what's interesting about this particular article is it just draws the attention to all the various things. So if you want one place to find all the things, here's the article to go to, so you can get each one of them and study them, read them at your leisure uh, so that it can make some sense to you. So Scott Edberg here, this is this is my favorite article of the 10 this week because there's just so much uh, going on here. Um, and it's a, it's a lot to digest. So he writes, in my opinion, the announcement of a response from the SJC, now this is again response to the dissent, was not the most interesting part of the By Faith article. Near the end of the article, the author notes that some in the majority chose to write opinions to offer, quote, additional comments about their decision, end quote. Uh, one concurring opinion is written by ruling elder Neil Kirk and T.E. Waters, but also signed by six other men in the majority. The brief statement clarifies their reasons for siding with the majority, addresses concerns regarding BCO 32-2, surrounding charges of doctrinal error, and, quote, ongoing concerns about some of T.E. Johnson's views, end quote, while both supporters and opponents of the case can easily find their favorite parts of the response, the third section is most notable from these eight men of the majority. These eight men center their concerns on T.E. Johnson's public statements as needlessly troubling, unsettling, and alarming the church at large. An example of this is found in T.E. Johnson's recent article in USA Today. So you've heard the phrase, Dominic, perception is reality. And the perception 
is that this case was not about the Missouri Presbyterian, whether or not they conducted a proper investigation. The, the, the large perception is that this case is about affirming or, uh, you know, uh, uh, affirming side B or not affirming side B. That That is the perception. The reality is that this was about whether or not they did a proper investigation. And, and the dissent makes very clear that, it, you know, to me, the dissent's black and white. Look, if the question was whether or not they did a proper investigation and you guys had to open up to add more stuff to the record of the case, shouldn't the Missouri Presbytery have done that? Shouldn't the Missouri Presbytery, as part of their proper investigation, Shouldn't they have opened up and, and gotten more information? And, and so that was the crux of the matter. But, you know, that, that's that's all water under the bridge now. But you get the feeling you get the feeling that when that USA Today article dropped by Greg Johnson around Christmas time, that there was the perception, at least maybe not the reality, but the perception was that there was egg <laughs> all over somebody's face. And I think, and I'm just real talk here, but I think these, uh, the response to the dissent and some of them in the majority are, you know, they're, they're, they're coming out trying to clarify, look, this did not make us a side B denomination. We were tasked with a much more narrow task than what's, you know, been publicized and uh, trying to kind of get past this, you know, perception versus reality and, and get to the truth of the matter. Absolutely. Well, in uh, that regard, and by the way, again, I want to just repeat uh, that the Edberg article there that we just talked about, which is number three, is uh, really will help, um, you know, to uh, put things in context if you take the time to read so that there's not just a, um, a knee jerk response. And Paul's comments right there at the end about uh, reading from the article that this wasn't an exoneration. The perception is that it was an exoneration of T. Johnson, but in fact, it was not. And uh, so there's still, like I've said, a lot still in the pipeline. So there, there's much more to come. So uh, stand by if you would. Uh, no, number four brings us to just an assessment, all this from a lay, layman's position, uh, this fourth article the slippage needs to stop we're starting to look like the 1920s pc usa that that's you know that's a century ago already when all the uh, that was a, a heyday the 20s were the battle that was going on in the church at that time uh, in the 1920s it started just before that but in the 20s especially uh was just very reminiscent of what we're going through now so here's 100 years later and we're going through another another kind of issue, different uh, issues on the table, but nonetheless, us, you know, just wrestling with things that are important for the life of the church. So that by the end of the 1920s, uh, just before it ended, 1929, because of all that happened, and Jay Gresham Machen having been so much a part of that, uh, he finally, and he was teaching at uh, Princeton Seminary, that he went across the river into Philadelphia and he, along with some others, started Westminster Theological Seminary because they realized for them at that point that the um, at least the theological education battle had been lost. He, they stayed as members of the uh, PCUSA. Uh, they, in 1933, started an independent board for Presbyterian missions. Uh, because of some of the problems that they saw in the mission, the foreign mission section of the church. And by 1936, um, he and some others had uh, were put out of the church and they formed the what eventually would become the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And out of that would come the Bible Presbyterian Church as sort of the family uh, Presbyterian family history of that time. So uh, 100 years ago, there was a lot of stuff happening. And so this is just sort of a, a bird's eye view of uh, saying what's happening 100 years later. And this is by Douglas uh, Ostien. Uh, he is a member of the uh, uh, church in, <clears throat> in Georgia of uh, Chestnut Mountain, uh, PCA in Chestnut Mountain, Georgia, just north of Atlanta. And basically, he starts out his 
bona fides. You know, I've spent some years in the 80s as a ruling elder at Hope Presbyterian Church and Evangelical PCUSA Church in Minneapolis. And he also spent some time in um, St. Louis, and he was an elder at the Covenant Presbyterian Church. Uh, there he read, um, came in contact with uh, David Calhoun, uh, who did a two-volume work on David Calhoun, taught at Covenant uh, Seminary and uh, Area of Church History um, on Princeton Seminary, which masterfully documents the tragic fall of the seminary and denomination as a whole. And anything that Calhoun writes, if you see his name on David B. Calhoun, it's excellent. He's uh, a great writer uh, and he really, um, really puts puts things in good chronological order dispassionately, but very forcefully and, and interestingly. And so um, uh, Douglas uh, Ostian here basically then is saying, what what do we can say about it? Well, but he says progressivism never um, is never a good thing, either in politics or in religion. Religious progressives have a tendency to change the gospel to make it culturally relevant and less offensive. They wobble and vacillate on homosexuality, creation, and the social justice gospel, the federal vision, and other issues. When elders are not solidly biblical on these, they are trifling with the truth and not communicating the Christian gospel as written. And they are telling God they know better than he does what his word should say and how it should be interpreted. So he goes on in that vein to just challenge us as the PCA, as he's giving this, uh, look, take a look to the past and see that similar kinds of things and approaches, uh, even if the issue on the tables issues were different, that we need to pay attention uh, to that. And he's basically calling the church to faithfulness, to return to the scriptures and uh, to, uh, you know, honor uh, the, the scriptures and the word. Uh, and he ends up, uh, finally, I find it disturbing that those who recorded their no votes on the overtures at General Assembly, the votes were overwhelmingly those of teaching elders, uh, that he's talking about the, when the overtures that we've just been talking about, 23 and 37, were passed, that there were a number of commissioners of the General Assembly who asked that their negative votes uh, be recorded. So they are listed and someone calculated the numbers there of 75 percent of those who signed the protest were um, teaching elders, that is ministers. So he that caused uh, Douglas Ostian to really take pause uh, uh, with regard to that. So uh, just a, a concern, an editorial sort of an op-ed piece that uh, we have just about the slippery slope that yeah uh, the slippage is happening. Well, he takes a he, he kind of makes an explosive claim here about the motivation of the elders um, uh, that allowed the revoice thing to even happen. He writes, "Now I acknowledge that progressives in the PCA are not yet as bad as the progressives in the PCUSA, but then." Neither were the PCUSA progressives in 1915 as bad as they are now. There is a tendency for a denomination to spiral downward once progressivism takes hold in that denomination. I am concerned that this downward spiral already commenced in the PCA will accelerate if the PCA allows its own organization of progressive Christians, known as the National Partnership, to have significant influence. The progressives have not been solid with biblical truth. This is clearly exemplified, he writes, by their weak handling of the whole Revoice affair. The first Revoice conference was held in a PCA church in Missouri Presbytery, pastored by a self-avowed same-sex attracted pastor, and pretty well celebrated all around by progressives. Where were the elders or overseers of the session of Memorial Presbyterian Church? And where was the denomination when this was going on? Why was it ever permitted? The short answer, and this is the explosive allegation, the short answer is that, as appalling as it sounds, the progressive elders teaching and ruling wanted it to happen, participated in its happening, and celebrated its happening. That shows where they're coming from and where the PCA is headed if progressives are allowed to have their way. Yep. That's right. And I think that's a good observation. In other words, if past is prologue, then we need to at least see how that uh, still addresses uh, the 
issues that we face today and uh, learn at least something from our historical um, engagements. And I think it's important for that to take place. So, okay, well then on number uh, five, we have actually two that are very closely related, both of them written by uh, Brad, uh, excuse me, did I get that right? Yeah, uh, positive changes. Number five and number seven uh, articles uh, this week by Brad Isbell. The first one, number five, uh, positive schedule changes for the 2022 PCA General Assembly. And then the second one, which is uh, which was uh, number seven on the list, uh, a word on narratives, that is, uh, developing a background of how do you explain things. Uh, and so these articles sort of touch together. Uh, but first of all, number five, just uh, a very structural thing. One of the concerns that has arisen, arisen over the last number of years is that the uh, General Assembly normally meets over about a three to four day about four day period as far as the on the calendar and uh and if you add a day before because there are like committee meetings that go on that it's really a whole week uh, five days and um so the question is how much time in that whole period of time is given to the business of the church uh there's many times for seminars very helpful seminars uh to opportunities uh, for worship services uh, also reunions is a great time for once a year to meet up with your friends who you went to college with. Uh, there are colleges that uh, Christian colleges that uh, will come and have um, breakfast, lunch or dinners for alumni and friends. And then there will be seminaries to do the same thing. So it's a very sort of a multiple multi-purposed event. So the, sometimes what gets left out in the hustings is the um, time for dealing with the issues that have to be dealt with once a year by the church. So uh, some concerns have been raised in the past. And so this year, um, uh, as, as Isabel points out, that the schedule has been published, uh, allows for uh, more hours um, in the day uh, and during the week for actually business. So we don't feel rushed or hurried because uh, at times what happens is near the end, everything's Go to sort of you put through the meat grinder and they're trying to get it done real quickly uh, because people have to catch planes or get home. So um, he this art the first article then is talking about uh, you know the need for um, you know this is good but maybe you can add a little bit more. He says one permanent solution might be to amend the rules of assembly operation to require the state of clerk to propose a docket with minimum amounts of uh, business day time for each day uh, of the assembly, a formula requiring two to four hours of business on the first uh, day, uh, eight on the second and eight before 6 p.m. on Thursday would be would guarantee several more hours for critical business uh, for the most recent uh, than the most recent dockets have, have done. So it's just a matter of effectiveness and efficiency uh, give more time, let it be done so we're not rushing uh, to, since we only, the General Assembly only meets once a year. So it's a very helpful article. Uh, the second one real quickly is, the, it almost goes on with Douglas Ostien's uh, article, critiquing what has been taking place. It says, the reasonable conclusion in the case of the same-sex attracted controversy is that the innovators are the schismatic and contentious one, not those who question them. Uh, it would be an unloving and cowardly act for those who oppose dangerous innovation encroachments of the modern sexual revolution and flawed concepts of identity and personhood to quit the fight before every effort has been made to preserve, uh, preserve the church. If anyone leaves the PCA over these issues, it ought to be those who would turn the church upside down with a new doctrine, not those who seek to preserve her in faithfulness. So the narrative here is uh, who moves, who moved, uh, who's changing things, uh, and in what direction is it being changed? 
So one sense, we want to have the focus on biz, good business and order to make sure we get all the job done of a church that's been growing and it's large. And so many parts that need to be dealt with carefully. And that second is, uh, let's not introduce things that are outside the norm uh, that do not fit the circumstances of our uh, history and theology. And if someone feels that that is an important thing, that he or his church and or those individuals can uh, locate somewhere else where they would find a home with those views. So, Paul, what's your thinking on that? Well, the, you know, article, uh, the first article by Brad Isbell is just, you know, inside baseball. And uh, let's hope right. that these changes will make the General Assembly run a little bit uh, better than it did last time, because I, I do remember uh, as I followed from a distance the 2021 General Assembly, listening to Brad uh, on Presbycast, uh, you know, that things just should have been moving a little bit uh, smoother. There were all, also articles written, I think, by him after the fact, kind of post-mortem on what could be done better. So I think some of those concerns uh, appear to have been addressed. Uh, as to this, uh, his other article, um, let me see here, number seven, a word on narratives. It's uh, it's pretty interesting to me. This this piece, um, if you skip down kind of the middle of the article, uh, this section rather, conservatives are presumed divisive, while their efforts to slow the advance of innovators or erect fortifications of defense are considered inconvenient or unpleasant. Any offensive action to push back an assault is met with howls of foul play and harsh condemnation. Conservatives are, the narrative goes, the problem, the obstacle to peace and flourishing. Such a thing is happening even now in the Presbyterian Church in America, but there is ample evidence that the divisiveness is actually coming from the progressive or beautiful orthodox side, not from the conservative side. And so I really started thinking, Dominic, like why why are the confessionalists or the conservatives considered the divisive ones? And I, I can't. You know, you mentioned that we were I think you said something earlier in this podcast about we've been obsessed with the side B situation because it's it, it is such a giant red flag. And really what it comes down to is the authority of Scripture. And that's really where what the debate is over this issue. And I feel like maybe the progressive side sees it as more of a cultural issue. And so we're the divisive ones. And it dawned on me on this issue. Uh, we're presumed divisive because. I suspect they view us as dividing them from a potential conversation between, I don't know, uh, uh, maybe an RUF pastor with a college student. You know, that if the PCA isn't pro side B, then it makes it very difficult. Maybe on some of these college campuses, we know how these college campuses are now. I mean, they're getting more and more away from critical thought if critical thought has already you know, gone altogether. And so once you get put in a box with young people today, it's very, very difficult to even have a conversation because uh, you're already uh, condemned because the progressives, and I'm talking about cultural progressives, are they approach everything as if they are somehow morally superior. So there's not even a chance to have a gospel conversation. Now, I can go into a, a lot of reasons why, if that is their issue, it's, it's, it's wrongheaded to have that as an issue. But I suspect that that is part of why uh, we or confessionalists are being presumed divisive on this issue. Yeah, and uh, that is the case. Is the idea here is that uh, the idea is that the Reformed Church is always reforming. Uh, what they do is to leave off that uh, squib at the very end of that uh, uh, that phrase that comes out of the Reformation. It's the Reformed Church is always reforming according to Scripture. It's not just changing according to the whims of culture and to the whims of individual members of the church. And uh, so that's usually where the, the, the rub comes. And I think I've said here uh, before that if you look at the whole history of the church, starting with the New Testament church and uh, coming right up to the present time, 21st century, that you'll find that in every generation uh, that we've had these battles uh, it doesn't take long for uh, churches that start off with great zeal, enthusiasm, and uh, theological integrity to begin to slip. Uh, a number of times people will quote Paul's exhortation to 
the the elders on Miletus, uh, the Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus, in which he reminds them, exhorts them in verse 28, Acts 20, 28, uh, that take heed to yourself and to the uh, shepherd, to the flock over whom God has made you the overseers. So you take make sure you're taking care of yourself, watch over your own Christian life, your own doctrine. And then remember, you're given a task, and that is care for the flock. And then verse 29, because I perceive that uh, that not too long from now, that ravenous wolves will arise from within you. Now, not coming from the outside. They're going to come from the inside. And he says, and so I'm concerned that if you don't pay attention to yourself and know exactly where you stand, if you're not taking care of the sheep, know how they can be protected, then as these wolves arise, you'll, uh, you won't be able to take care of them. So pay attention so that you can deal with them. So he's already warning us that the fight is going to happen. It's not going to only be in the church, but it's also this more cosmic sense of what does, uh, you know, you think of the spiritual warfare that comes in, that Satan's whole agenda is to thwart God and to go against everything that is godly and right. And uh, so he's the one that loves to stir things up to the point that even uh, Paul in uh, his pastoral epistles uh, says that they we we can easily become a pawn of Satan. Doesn't mean you're going to be uh, you know uh, you just could you know taken over by a demon possessed by one, but it means that you can unknowingly uh, pay more attention to the falsehoods and the lies of Satan, and as a result, you can be um, led astray. So be careful. So the warning is there. There in the New Testament, just within what 30, 40, 50 years of Christ having died on a cross, buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, and the and Pentecost taking place in Acts 2. Uh, that though it was already happening even at a time when it was historically closer to the time that Jesus uh, was here on earth uh, coming to die as our savior. So the church is always to be on alert, always vigilant, because they're they're always you can say always because you have a 21 years of 21 centuries of history is always uh, leans towards a decline if we're not careful. Okay, well, with that in mind, that's uh, number five and number seven, and so we come to um, number nine, right? Yeah, that's the last one. And it's called Don Quixote Christianity, why many heroic stands of today are like tilting at windmills. Now, Hang on, did we do I, number six? Oh, did we do number six? Oh, did I miss that? Yes. I don't yes, know. It's I, not time to leave. Is, it's not time to leave. Okay, that's right. Okay, yep. I've got them here. The um, that the, These are articles, uh, number six and number eight go together. That's right. I moved them off here to make sure we dealt with them together. Um, it's not time to leave in it's standing in the PCA. And there's a third one that's going to be coming out, uh, soon, uh, by, uh, minister Ryan Beasy. And because of all that is happening here in the, uh, PCA, um, he's giving these three articles to discuss, uh, is it time to go time to leave? What, what should our reaction be? And these first two articles that are here as uh, numbers seven and uh, six and eight are, uh, he basically is saying, don't, not yet, uh, stay focused. Uh, yes, pay attention to the trajectory of the PCA, know the historical context of it, um, but don't, don't give up the ship uh, at this point. It's not time uh, to leave. And then in the second article, he uh, actually calls how to be engaged in the church, uh, being involved in the uh, local church and in the uh, presbytery level, the general assembly level, also about uh, participating and giving to the various works, especially to missions and church growth, uh, to making sure that we're not uh, isolating ourselves and hiding behind uh you know, a sort of uh, non, let's see, non uh, rocky uh, cement uh, mo monastery walls. So I think he's a good warning. Now, the third one is uh, takes up those who says, okay, if it's time to leave here, the reasons they're given for that. So that'll be the third one that will be out soon. So uh, good admonition that now is not the time 
uh, to consider. There's much more to do, and um, I trust that we'll that'll be a good learning uh, thing. Uh, BZ is the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Fort Oglethorpe in Georgia. And he writes, our standards faithfully summarize the scripture. We should start enforcing them. Men who disagree with our standards should have the integrity to seek ecclesiastical fellowship elsewhere rather than disturb the peace of the PCA. Holding men accountable to the standards is how we create a healthier, more beautiful, more biblical PCA. Yes, and that's an uh, excellent thing. Is In other words, if we're going to be the church, one of the marks of the church, well, the marks are the faithful preaching of the scriptures, the uh, proper administration of the sacraments, and also uh, the institution of uh, godly discipline that is uh, follows the justice principles that God gives to us in scripture. So let's apply them and work uh, for the vitality of the church. And then uh, now we come to number nine, which is the last one, because number 10 uh, is we've already dealt with as the number two from uh, Tom Harvey. And so number 10 is the question of the uh, Don Quixote Christianity, why many heroic stands are today are like tilting at windmills by Wyatt Graham. He's in Canada. And the uh basically the summary i would give of this uh just in personal interest of disclosure paul and i did discuss some of this uh offline before we came onto the podcast uh so that we can make sure we understood it uh, correctly uh is that he says you need to know that there, there are always going to be battles there are always going to be disagreements you know we're ultra fallen honorary sinners and we will get on each other's case quickly and the question is, do we take on everything uh, that comes down the pike? So he is saying that not everything is of equal value of, or importance, and also that we need to act with discernment about the things that we take up and fight, that we don't let minutia get in the, um, in the way uh, of examples and um, taking things up. So, uh, Paul, you had in a couple of examples, and then I'll end with a couple others, and then we can. Uh, well, you know, on. this this article, uh, you know, full disclosure, didn't do it, didn't do it for me. Uh, I thought I just I disagreed kind of with the premise, thought there were some straw men. Uh, I, you know, I can get maybe the broader point that when we do decide to stand on principle, uh, you know, we need to, you know, do it in a, in an honorable way. Um, but I just kind of think that this was a way of uh, well, really the whole point of the article was to, to not take Don Quixote stands and, uh, you know, thinking that a tweet or a blog post is going to somehow, you know, uh, do something more, accomplish more than uh, than it really does. And, you know, what's what, you know, kind of what's the point? And, and I just kind of feel like um, to me, I took it as maybe more of a, a, an attempt to correct those of us who feel like we are uh, having to have uh, very curt conversations with uh, Pharisees. And that's the way I took it. Now, maybe I took it in the wrong way, but uh, that's those are just my two cents on it. Read it and uh, you know decide for yourself. Yeah, the way I, I put it is, is this, that if everything's a 10, the 10 loses its meaning. Uh, so you have to evaluate what where some things some issues are on the uh, scale of um, of being, and uh, that uh, it's important that we uh, make those assessments. So uh, tilting at Wilmans means that you you're picking a fight probably in an area that is outside of your expertise and is probably so idealistic that you're not going to make it. So uh, stand for what is true because, you know, there, there were I would have hated to have been Peter when Paul confronted me in Galatians uh, where he got on his case, uh, Galatians 2, when Paul uh, Peter himself broke uh, fellowship with the believing Gentiles in, um, in, in Galatia. And so it was well, actually in Caesarea. And that wasn't a good thing. So. Uh, but th there's a time when that kind of thing is necessary. And then there are things that you, uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, when he warns Christians, be careful about taking one another to court 
uh, here you're believers now and you're going to a secular court asking them for the judge, secular judges for, you know, biblical advice, which they can't give. He says, why not rather be wronged? So you 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 weigh things and be careful about creating, putting, making everything uh, something for a major warfare uh, to uh, control your life. So just as a warning, but um, if if the interpretation that you Paul gave is is there, then uh, then that would then it would if that were the case, then it would it it itself went over the over the top and missed it so <laughs> that's good I'm, point. <laughs> I'm giving the judgment of uh, charity here that uh what Wyatt has uh, said is uh that be discerning uh know how to pick your fights know when to hold them when to fold them and uh that'll that'll be good so anyway paul thank you for a good uh lesson here i i hope i one of the things i'm hoping is uh, we're going through this podcast as i was preparing for it too I said, well, this is one that could really get people down if they're listening to all the stuff that's happening and it comes at them, you know, sort of like trying to take a sip out of a fire hydrant. And uh, so, folks, we don't want you to do that. We want you to be in despair. Uh, remember who owns the church. And this is not a nice little piety that we throw in to, you know, swage things. But it's true that, you know, uh, after 21 centuries, the church is still here. And those who were raised up to do good and battle, God has taken home to glory. Those who have uh, brought, you know, um, injury to the life of the church, uh, maybe they were saved by the hair of their chinny chin chin, or the, the uh, dust of smoke, as uh, Paul says in First Corinthians 10. But here's the point: is that uh, uh, Jesus is the one who really controls things, and we need to entrust ourselves to Him, and uh, He will carry us through. So we need to be found faithful and what we're doing um, and uh, to stand right for the things of Christ. So I hope that will be an encouragement to me, to Paul, to all of us who are yes, listening sir. to this podcast. So until the next time, uh, this is the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. Uh, go and read the Aquila Report, the, the AquilaReport.com. And when uh, your newsletter comes on the 15th of February, uh, read it. And if you're listening to this after the fact, you can still pick it up and go back and read it. So Lord's blessing to you and we'll see you next time.